welcome to Read Weird, a podcast about reading and writing strange and experimental fiction. I'm Carly. I'm Lindsay. And this is our podcast. It is. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is. If you're just joining us, we like a lot of awkward silences. We sure do. Awkward silences, weird things, and uh, (laughs) writing and literature. (laughs) Yeah, and sometimes all of those things combined. Yeah, no, usually all those things combined. Oh, man. (laughs) So what weird stuff has happened to you this week? Oh, man. So I've got a couple weird things. One weird thing is there's this person who lives near me on, like, this route that I go running on. Because I've only ever seen this thing happen on this running route. So they must live around here. And the last summer, we noticed that they were graffitiing, like, death to Satan and, you know, lots of anti-satanic messages, which sounds (laughs) sounds fine. Like, I don't know who's going to oppose this. But this, I think it's the same person, just based on, you know, Mm -hmm. grammar and style and whatever. They've started printing business cards and pinning them to trees along our running route that now the business card says welcome to portland oregon question mark an inept city of demon possessed people um (laughs) (laughs) so i mean this is either a person who has like way too much time on their hands or someone who's seriously in need of help and i'm just not sure which one it is i mean first of all i would counsel you to carry like a crucifix or something with you on your runs. I feel like you need to protect yourself. I need to be able to prove that I'm anti-Satan as well. Yeah. Look, no, I totally don't believe in Satan. Um, (laughs) I don't know how you do that. Uh, Although I will say, I feel like Satanists get a really bad rap. Yeah. Well, this is, I think this is more anti-Satan the being (laughs) than Hmm. Satanist. Okay. But yes, you're right about Satanists. So weird. I have to say, after living here for two years, this person's not entirely wrong <laughs> that it's in an city of demon-possessed people. Oh my god. Yeah, I mean, this feels like a very Portland thing. Yeah, it definitely is. Okay, so that's my, <laughs> my that's my local weird. That's wonderful. <laughs> and then there's this awesome thing that was also brought to my attention um, recently. There are actually two articles that are a study of apples and oranges, because you know like the, the expression, like it's like comparing apples and oranges. Uh-huh. So this one person who's a NASA researcher did a study of apples and oranges to compare whether they are in fact that different. Oh my god. Uh, and another researcher did as well, in, in the, the second researcher's work was published in the BMJ, which is like, you know, the big yeah. deal. It's like the yeah. whole grail. So um, I think it's really important <laughs> to let you know. Yeah, what are the results? <laughs> The results are uh, that it is apparent from the f- from the figure in Scott Sanford's research that apples and oranges are in fact very similar, and <laughs> <laughs> and it would appear that comparing apples and oranges should no longer be considered valid. That that defense is no longer valid. Oh my god! This is a somewhat startling revelation. It can be anticipated to have a dramatic effect on the strategies used in arguments and discussions in the future. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, who has this much time on their hands? I, I don't know. And, and funding. I love that. Like, yeah, it's I can so you imagine good. applying to, like, some funding agency and being like, listen, this is the groundbreaking study that I want to do. Are they different enough to, to merit comparison? Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's definitely worth reading. So Scott Sanford is the author of one of the articles. It's worth reading his because I think the other one that's in the BMJ is fun because of the topic, but it's definitely more dry. Um, Scott Sanford's is like much more punchy. They, they like freeze dried samples and then took, you know, samples from that thing and did something sciencey with it to see if they actually were different, but it's <laughs> really funny. They did something sciencey. That's yeah. about as much science as I ever need to know. They they grounded and like, they did okay. something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And also, like, it's one of those things where, like, pretty much all life on Earth is pretty similar, right? I'm probably I probably have a lot in common with an orange, also. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're pretty tart. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. What's your weird stuff? Yeah, my weird stuff. I don't have a lot from my human life. (laughs) But I do have this wonderful article from Jezebel, the title of which is, please invite me to the next rich people seance at the Dakota. (laughs) 
just so great. It's just like this New York, it's like a recap of this New York Times style section piece about a bunch of like rich young people having a seance at the Dakota. And I just want to go. I just want to go. That is amazing. I was trying to pick out like a good piece of it, but really... Just read it. Just go read it. Okay. Yeah, just read it. But that's all I really want in life is is to go to... Maybe not with rich people. I think I would yeah. be too mad at them. But I just want to go to a lot of seances and like talk to some ghosts and then have no ramifications after that. <laughs> that's, those are good stipulations to put in place. Yeah. But you know, I was just thinking the other day, because we have in Portland, they're called the Shanghai Tunnels. Um, and they're this like series, this underground network of tunnels that people were apparently shanghaied through in the mm. late 1800s and through the early 1900s. So we went on this tour a few weeks ago, and it was not as much of a tour as I'd hoped. It was definitely more like being in your grandma's like dirt floor basement and less like being in a tunnel system. Mm-hmm. But you know, they definitely were trying to like prime you for like ghost happenings. And I was thinking of you, and was like, I really wish we'd live closer so that we could go do like a seance or Ouija board thing together. Me too. We need to plan like weird tourism trips to each other's cities. Oh, let's do it. Yeah, I think that would be good. It's a really good idea. Baltimore definitely will deliver. There's a bunch I of think St. Stuff. Louis would too. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Also, can I just, so first of all, what the fuck Shanghai? <laughs> like, <laughs> way to go, racism. Yeah, it's my, oh, yeah, there, that was the, probably the most problematic part of this tour was like, oh man, the way that the, that this woman was portraying the events and who they would Shanghai, you know, um, and the things that she was saying, like, it's evident that the Chinese built the tunnel because they were really good at building tunnels. Oh, like, fuck no. Yeah, it was not good. Or like, oh, and they wanted... Indians, meaning Native Americans, because they were so big and strong. And I was like, Yikes. oh, stop. Oh, oh stop. golly, jeez. Okay, but also, I feel like you were sort of saying, like, it, it, it was underwhelming. This, this tour was underwhelming. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like that's always the case. Like, I went to Salem, uh, Massachusetts last summer, and I was so excited. It was going to be so witchy and, like, weird. And it just, like... It was just a tourist trap in most cases. And, yeah. like, I feel like that is always the case, sadly, or almost always the case, where, like, I want something to be really magical and strange, and then it's just, like, some person's basement. And sometimes some person's basement can be magical and strange, like, to be mm-hmm. fair. But so much of what, like, the norm world, for lack of yeah. a better word, thinks is, like, super weird. I'm like, that's just a wax model. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I think the Museum of Jurassic Technology was the only place that lived up to the hype. Yeah, absolutely. That was one where I was like not disappointed at all. Would have lived there. Yeah. Oh, immediately would have moved in, visiting like resident scholar and or just closet lurker. Oh no, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) And that's one too where like the the kind of dinkiness of it works in its favor like it's mm-hmm. not not trying to be something it's not <laughs> it's it's taking that into into what and it's kind of about that i think in some way mm-hmm. yeah it knows what its limitations are and it's working within them yeah and using them using them yeah. to like up the the factor yeah i love the museum of Jurassic technology so much i know it's like a home it is <sighs> go back there Yeah, let's do that. Let's add that to our list of places to tour. Okay. Read weird on the road. That would be great. So so let's just both quit our jobs and go on tour for a year. Okay. (laughs) I'm down. (laughs) All right. Oh, boy. So should we talk about our story? Yeah, let's talk about our story for the week. Okay. Now that I'm sad that we're not in the Museum of Jurassic Technology. I know. Or in the same city or room or anything. Or can't go on a cross-country tour together. I know. We will, though. (laughs) Summer 2018. I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, So this week we chose uh, I Am a Knife by Roxane Gay, sort of in celebration of her recent memoir that came out. I kind of wanted to read something uh, of hers because it's like Roxane Gay year. Sure is, yeah. She's just killing it this year. So this story first appeared in The Literarian uh, and has been collected in her short story collection, Difficult Women, which came out this March. Roxane Gay is also the author of Untamed State, which is a novel, Bad Feminist, a collection of nonfiction essays, and most recently, her memoir, Hunger. So Roxane Gay, I have read, you know, her various writings online, 
and an untamed state and I have there's something else I'm just not remembering but just like an overall genius brain but this is her first Mm -hmm. work of short fiction that I had read Mm -hmm. and it was really interesting for me to approach it like I didn't know I didn't know what to expect Mm. you know especially because we're reading it in the context of like read weird so I'm kind of I've got my like weird glasses on and this is different from the other works that we've read you know I think a lot of what we've done so far is very easily classified as being weird and this is a little trickier in that I think the weirdness is in the language Mm. yeah it I mean it's definitely like when we were talking about doing it I was a little nervous because it is definitely less overtly weird but I think one of the things about it is that it it is pretty weird to me yeah but it it is in the language it's in the tone and it's also in the way that the story treads this line between the metaphorical and the literal and I think that's the thing that that really draws me to this story is partly the voice of this narrator which feels very weird to me the Mm -hmm. this this person feels very weird but also that there's this sort of fuzziness or, or ambiguity about what's literally happening in scenes and that that to me feels like it still counts but yeah I think you're absolutely right that like in the spectrum of literary weirdness it's like way far over on one side yeah Oh yeah, it definitely still counts as weird though. So do you want to summarize quickly? Sure. Uh, so, and actually this is something that, that as I was rereading for the nth time today, I was thinking it's hard to tell what happens in present moment in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I think I want to talk about. But essentially this is a story uh, about a woman and her husband uh, who have lost a child. They're living together and sort of still suffering with the grief of that loss and with the sort of ramifications in uh, her husband's family. And then her sister becomes pregnant. Her twin sister becomes pregnant. So her sister comes to live with her. And uh, it's about her sort of rescuing her sister from pregnancy complications um, in this sort of mm-hmm. visceral, bloody way. And sort of about several instances in her life where she has been subjected to trauma, partly, but also where she has been an, kind of an agent of violence, in a mm-hmm. way. And so, like, there's there's her miscarriage, for lack of a better word, the complications from, from the narrator's pregnancy. Um, there's a car accident that she and her sister are in. And there's the sister's pregnancy and and delivery toward the end of the story and there's also uh, they go hunting and and kill a deer and that that seems to be part and parcel of the violence too yeah there is a lot of blood in the story yeah and like it's all over the place (laughs) you know yeah it is over everything yeah in people on people yeah people are eating it it's yeah there's so much blood yeah and viscera it's very gory. Although I don't think it's, I mean, it, this story revels in that, I think. And the, this, these are characters who have a sort of psychosexual thing about the gore. Mm-hmm. But it's also not like a an Eli Roth movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not Saw. I don't think I don't no. think it's it's pornographic in its violence in that way, but it is very much about how violence is tied up in sensuality and in physicality. I also think it's like Carly always say when you know we're workshopping is to put it in the body and I think that's something that Roxanne Gay does exceptionally well is to like be attuned to the body mm-hmm. and I, like I think that that's where the gore is coming in too is like it's like realism even though it's not yeah. you know but it's like a realistic attention to like what would it feel like to be in these situations yeah yeah and it's I think that's one too where like the story to me is really treading this line between something that feels very realist and something that feels kind of stylized or elevated in an almost fable-like way. But I think it totally, like there's that, there's a moment where, so they're out hunting and her husband puts the deer's blood on her face and -hmm. the description of it as it dries is so like precise and closely detailed that, yeah, I mean, there, there are moments where this really feels like just straight realism. Yeah. But also there's enough sort of strange stuff going on that I don't feel totally comfortable just calling this like straight literary fiction. Right, right. I agree with that. Yeah, I think what going back to what you said about needing to have read the whole story to be able to kind of summarize what it's about, that was really important to my experience. Like when I first approached reading the story, like, you know, I knew we were reading it for Read Weird and was looking for the weirdness. And when... Uh, you know, you first start reading the story, it starts off with two lines. The first line is, my husband is a hunter, and the second line is, I am a knife. And like we've talked about in other segments, like in Amelia Gray, is, you know, the, that first line is so important for mm-hmm. establishing grounds. And mm-hmm. so this is really interesting. The story was really interesting to me because 
normally like when I'm writing or when I'm reading the things that I know are weird fiction, those first lines tell me exactly like what is literally happening in this world. But the wife, the narrator in the story, both is and is not literally a knife. And mm-hmm. that's really interesting. Yeah, and I think that like that's part of what makes it feel weird to me is that the like those beginning sentences are definitely setting up my expectations for this to not be read literally. Yeah. Or or for me to read what's on the page both literally and metaphorically because there is this sort of repeating line about i'm a knife i'm a knife and that definitely is partly about the narrator's state of mind and how she sort of wants to be tough or unemotional and wants to cut out her emotions Uh, she literally talks about that but it's also about the kind of violence that she's experiencing and also perpetrating at least Mm -hmm. in her mind right like she she definitely is party to a lot of violence and literally is cutting things um, with her mm-hmm. without without a tool, as far as we can tell. Right. And so she does become a knife. And so I think, yeah, the, the tone of it, the voice of this narrator is really clear in those first two sentences and does a lot of work to help me accept what comes later in a non-realist way. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, I think the walking the line fiction is becoming more and more popular and, mm. and more and more well done. It's so easy to see how this could be a story that would, you know, take on the literal. And then it's like, well, how does a knife become pregnant? And, you know, how does a husband <laughs> handle a wife who's a knife? You know, th- so it's it's very easy to see where somebody's mind would follow that logic. But mm. I think what was so weird about the story for me was that it's not, it's just not comfortably sitting within any genre. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, like, like, in the scenario you're describing, this is not, like, an absurdist story where... A man marries a knife, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not it's not that. And Gay doesn't seem at all interested in in the sort of literal implications of well, is she, if she's a knife, what is that? I don't think that's the reading, right? Like, right. and I don't think you're suggesting it is either. Right. But I think it like she wants to sort of take on the power of that and the the metaphorical sort of valence of that and say like, look, this can be metaphorically true it can be psychologically true but it can also do literal work in the story right like so she can literally cut things Mm -hmm. and i think that like that's an interesting way to treat a character's psychological state that feels very realistic to me too is that our interior kind of state does have real world ramifications yes much of what happens in like the violence is like you said she's this agent of violence it's her her psychological state kind of manifesting itself mm-hmm. um, on those around her, like with the car accident scene uh, where they're, she and her sister are riding together and are hit by a drunk driver. There's this line about how her sister is dying and so she's dying too. And so mm-hmm. that kind of like that psychological... By, like it's it's calling on that idea that like twins are kind of connected and, you know, and to have one twin die is like a significant loss to the other twin. And so she cuts out the heart apparently you know literally from the drunk driver and puts it in her sister to keep her sister alive Mm -hmm. but it is that kind of like the psychological feeling of like the fear of loss that's causing her to be this agent of violence like you were saying yeah yeah and i think it that moment i think if i were to read it from like a strictly realist standpoint it would you know i could say oh well it tells me how much her sister means to her and you know that she would do anything for her and she feels like she willed her sister to live and and this other person Mm -hmm. to die which like yes i'm i'm completely on board for that but also i'm very interested in a character who is literally willing to rip someone's chest open to save their Mm -hmm. sister like that feels much more powerful to me than just like i you know i think i do this or i would want to do this yeah and i think i think this is a character who is capable of that i when she says that she opened the drunk driver's chest and takes out the heart i completely believe it yeah i'm i'm there yeah actually my margin note for this is that i believe in the two hearts more than the narrator as a knife <laughs> so, which is so i think that was speaking to like my difficulty in like accessing this story which i love i thought this was a great story but like you know i, I totally believe that she would cut open somebody's heart and put that heart or cut open someone's chest and put that person's heart in another person's chest and i was like yes and then her twin sister now has two hearts and like yes and i'm so on board with that but the the way that the narrator calls herself a knife that was so slippery with the you know the the moments where she's able to use her hand as a knife versus the moments where she is like 
very much are living in a human body. Mm, mm-hmm. It's interesting. I don't think that gave me a lot of trouble. That sort of fuzziness between, like, is she literally a knife? I don't know why, though. I don't know why. Yeah, and I don't know why it did give me any trouble. Like, it wasn't like a, it's just like a huh. Yeah. You know, like, I'm here for the two hearts, but I'm not sure about <laughs> you being a knife. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I don't know why. That's interesting. Yeah. And it may have been just because of my, like, early, my first reading with the, you know, those early sentences. Yeah. With the, I am a knife, you know, and I was yeah. expecting, you are a knife. It is, it is in fact, like, it, it, those first sentences, especially on the first reading, like, it enforces a literal reading of that, um, for sure. Well, so one thing I think, too, that's interesting about the I am a knife-ness is the way that it... I am a knifeness. That's my new... <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so what's interesting about that is that it, uh, like, in some ways it paints her as a tool of her husband, you know? Like, she mm-hmm. is the hunter's knife. But I think it also, like, there are moments where she describes her husband as a gun. And so it almost seems like they're in opposition in some way. That a knife is a tool of violence, but it can also be a tool to save someone's life, as we see or in the um, end of the story. Whereas the husband doesn't have that power like a gun is not like all we see a gun do in this story is is kill something Mm -hmm. and i thought that was really interesting the sort of slipperiness there too of like what that tells me about their relationship and maybe that's overthinking it but i I definitely was curious about the husband and wife in this story seem very strong like their connection is very strong and i don't really doubt that it's solid in some way, mm-hmm. but it definitely, there's something something strange there about the distinction she's making between herself as a knife and her husband as a gun or as a hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he's, he's both alternately is, is interesting to me. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's in the last line. He is a gun, I am a knife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still kind of pondering that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And actually, so this is something we started to talk about this before we started recording. You and I both started off reading the version of this story that was published on the Center for Fiction's website, which is a little bit different than the version in her collection. And so the, there are a few places there that the I am a knife and I am a gun stuff is a little bit different. I think that most of the, most of the story is not significantly different from version to version um but there are some things at the sentence level that do change and one of them is is pertaining to the i am a knife and i am a gun so for instance the narrator also calls her sister a knife huh yeah which i thought was really interesting it's in that that passage uh where she's talking about her sister like when she first mentions her sister so my sister my twin comes to visit often because she understands why i stay with my man in a place i do not love she understands he loves me so good i would live anywhere with him they get along well she too is a knife ah. right so it like it it's interesting that it seems to then conflate like this the knifeness with like an emotional toughness i guess yeah or ruthlessness or something and then the i think the last sort of interesting thing to me the scene where they're leaving the her like mother-in-law's house mm-hmm. um in the in the version that i first read in the center for fiction it's something like uh you know she she pulls herself really close to him in the car as they're leaving mm-hmm. and it's sort of something like i want i want my mother-in-law to know what there is between us mm-hmm. and in this version it's i want her to know colon i am a knife hmm. and that is really interesting to me too that it's not about the relationship between the two of them it's about like i'm fierce go fuck yourself <laughs> mm, that just gave me chills yeah it's really good <laughs> it's really really good okay so i really I, I like those edits those little tweaks like you said they don't change the overall structure of the story but that that is really interesting especially because like the last line did give me a little pause in my version which is that he is a gun i am a knife and i you know that's one thing i've i literally have hmm written in the margin <laughs> <laughs> hmm. <laughs> because yeah. it just like i wasn't sure what it was doing for me or for the story yet but i really like cutting him out of that last bit and just ending with the i am a knife it's it's and it sounds like in the print version that you have it's really emphasizing like what it means to be a knife, both literally and uh, metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's it's this interesting juxtaposition of like in that final scene they're having sex and like I think the the common metaphors would be of like a woman as a receptor 
receptacle of some kind, you know, mm-hmm. like something that can be penetrated, right? And instead, it's of the woman as, as a knife, as, as a penetrating object. And, like, that's really interesting to me. And I'm not going to go, like, full Freudian on that, but I think that's <laughs> that's part of the, like, power of this metaphor is that it's resisting ways that we traditionally talk about women and women's grief and women's emotionality. High five to that. That is good reading there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to go back to something that you said about the, the sort of twinness of this. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that's another piece that's like, it's slightly unreal, but also could just be read as, as metaphorical. Um, and I think it's interesting. This is another uh, difference in the drafts is that and now I do have that other the other draft in front of me. There's this sort of interesting moment when they're talking about the two sisters and the narrator's husband and the guy Grant, who is the mm-hmm. sisters, kind of on and off boy toy. Um, <laughs> so they they go out to the park and they're like both couples are kind of making out. And there's this scene where the sisters kind of seem to feel what the other feels. Yeah. Um, which I think kind of enhan- enforces a reading that is like, they maybe they do really have a connection. Um, maybe there is some, some more than metaphorical relationship there. Or maybe they're just getting off on... Well, oh, yeah, right. Well, there's also at the end of the paragraph in the Center for Fiction version, it says, people ask us if we have some kind of special connection, we lie when we answer their questions. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, what, why are you lying? I don't know. Right. Well, so that was what was interesting to me. Because in the published version, that's not what it says. <laughs> what does it say? <laughs> Tell me. So... People ask us if we have some kind of special connection. We lie and tell them we don't. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So they do. So they definitely do. They definitely oh. do. And it, it, I think that, that line takes this reading of like, well, it's just that they're really close. Or like, she feels like she's going to die when her sister is dying. To like, no, she would definitely die if her sister died. Like... <laughs> Well, and that also enhances feelings that I had when I was reading when the, so the sister becomes pregnant and there's, I was so convinced that something terrible was going to happen and I was like, don't do it because there's this, this line where the husband says, I wish we could take the child growing in her and put it inside you where it belongs. Mm -hmm. And then there's like these awful, like, you know, she, the sister, the narrator feels the baby kick in the sister and punches herself in the stomach Mm -hmm. and then you know later on it's you know her sister is like surprisingly in labor and they're in the middle of country in the country and they can't get uh, an ambulance in time and so her sister is looking at her looking to her for help and there's a line that says she trusts she is safe and she trusts me and our eyes lock and I'm like, you're going to take the baby and just let your sister bleed out and die, aren't you? Like, I was uh-huh. so convinced that something, like, terrible was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think the story definitely, like, structurally also leaves room for that. Cause, uh-huh. So there's the scene where she's, like, slicing her sister open and delivering the baby. And it ends, like you, like with the part you were reading, it ends with my sister holds her arms open, she trusts me, and then the next paragraph is a flashback to the two <laughs> of them trying, the, the narrator and her husband trying to um, get to the hospital in time. And so there's this moment where you're like pulled out of the present moment and taken back to this other traumatic experience the narrator has had that seems to really enforce the possibility that she might steal the baby. Mm-hmm. And then finally, it's like the night after my nephew was born. It's like, oh my God, thank God. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because it's like also, you know, in that literal metaphorical thing is who performs a C-section at home? Like you don't perform a C-section at home. Like don't do it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> So it just, it seems like she's baby stealing. Yeah. But I think the story also, at least to me, gives enough, like, credible rationale for, like, they're not going to make it to the hospital in time. Oh, yeah. That, you know, like, this is, like, you can kind of see why they would do it. <laughs> um, but also, yeah, like, what the fuck? You're <laughs> cutting your sister up. <laughs> yeah. 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 But also, why wouldn't you just, like, let her give birth naturally you know mm-hmm. we, there, we don't know that there's like a breach or any reason you would need to yeah kind of dive in there and 
scoop her out. <laughs> Dive in there. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> but I think that the other thing that I like about this, and I think this this moment kind of touches on that, is that this story is, to me, both literally weird, right? Like there's, you know, this woman cutting her sister open with her fingernail and um, maybe cutting someone's so chest unsanitary. open. Right. <laughs> I love that that's I hope your you problem. you boiled those fingernails. <laughs> yeah, that's not the deal breaker for me somehow. <laughs> But so there's there's plenty of stuff that like it's easy to read as literally weird, but I think this story is also very much about psychological weirdness and about <laughs> you know, I mean these are these are some fucked up people and and I don't yeah. say that with judgment I say that with appreciation, um, but I think I think Gay is really interested in the psychological sexual weirdness of this also and the way that uh, trust is complicated and love is complicated and sexual desire can be complicated by grief and by by physical trauma like this seems really i think that's part of what makes this weird too is that you do read it and go wait is she gonna take that baby like this character feels weird both in that she like is capable of cutting people open and also in that like she is obsessed with blood <laughs> and you know yeah and having sex with you know deer blood all over her face oh yeah as you do well there's a, like the structurally the story is really nice too because it does start off with the making love and then the making love in the deer blood and then ends in this really like violent sexual encounter that's preceded right by a paragraph of not making it to the hospital in time and how she bled all over the seat. And, like, there's just, like, it's blood and sex and violence and it's just, like, this really nice, like, visual mirroring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this feels like a very, and I don't mean this pejoratively at all, this feels like a very tidy story in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very tightly constructed so that all of the pieces, for the most part, fit together in that way, which, like... Yeah. Uh, no surprise, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, it really feels very um, psychologically and literally well integrated. Yeah, for sure. Do we want to talk a little bit about the tone or voice of this? Is there is there yeah. more to say? I think so. I think so. I think part of what made me so uneasy about, you know, and made me worry that they were going to steal the baby was the tone. And mm-hmm. that it is so kind of, it's, removed a little bit and I think in a way that is indicative of like trauma and stuff like that like there is a little bit of that room I don't know how exactly to explain that but yeah well I think there's sometimes a like a flattening in some way like and I think what this narrator is actively trying to do and she she says it at some point you know I wish I could I could carve the anger out of my body the way I cut everything else yeah this is a narrator for whom emotion is very painful and doesn't want to be feeling necessarily you know she she feels jealous of her sister and it doesn't go away until she punches herself in the stomach like she's she's using violence to tamp down on her emotional feeling but also she has emotional reactions to yeah. violence. I was thinking too about I'm trying to find that one line where she sits in the what would have been the baby's room until she can't breathe and then has to crawl out of uh-huh. the room. Oh yeah, here it is. I I rock back and forth until I cannot yeah. breathe and then I crawl into the hallway and gasp for air. And that was really interesting to me because, you know, I could see if if that were put in the body more, I would have been feeling way more devastated as a reader. But because of the way it's conveyed, I feel like I don't feel what this narrator is feeling, but I feel very sad for her, I guess. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting that there are some parts that are so visceral, but some parts that are so removed and kind of flattened. Yeah. Well, and it really does rely, and we've talked about this before, the sort of the way the declarative sentence operates, right? Like this very much feels like a story that is not working so much to like render what having a panic attack in your dead baby's bedroom feels like. Yes. But to tell us that it does. And I completely accept it. It's it's one of those cases where the voice is so strong and seems so much to run on the declarative sentence and, and the matter of factness of this narrator who's going to tell us pretty wild mm-hmm. stuff without blinking that when she says she has this you know emotional physical reaction being in the room oh totally i accept it i don't i think the the voice really sells that in a way that another story might need to rely on a more detailed description yeah. of what it feels like yeah 
And maybe that is kind of a feature of the declarative sentence when used in weird fiction in particular, is that it kind of is a little flatter. But that's that like that flatness helps you to accept it and to be primed for like the weirdness that follows. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think it's it's a way of saying like trust me, believe me on this one, like trust me on this one. Yeah. Generally I do. Like in this story certainly I do. I think also there there's something going on here with like summary and dialogue, I guess. Like there's not really that much dialogue and what is is like pretty stylized in a way. So like there's moments where her sister is telling her that she's pregnant and she's kind of getting upset on the phone and her mm-hmm. sister says I understand. And it's like that's not I mean maybe that's something that people would really say to each other or even more pointedly the moment where her sister goes into labor and she says to Grant leave us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it's so the like kind of dialogue is not super contemporary. It doesn't feel super like credible if you read it just as like just how do people talk to each other. And so, it, but it does feel like it fits in with that fable like tone and the the sort of flatness of the narration or the I don't know if flatness is the right word, but the matter of factness, the, the sort of because it is it's not flat right. in the sense that like it's right. shallow. It's maybe flat in the sense that it's like affectless. Yeah, yeah. But there's and I think that there's something there about. Mm-hmm. There's so much underneath it. The narrator is not expressing, and it's very clear. This is not a story that like doesn't make me feel anything, right? Like the 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 lack of affect is clearly something that the narrator is yeah trying to accomplish. Yeah, I guess that's where I was thinking about like the trauma is that maybe that flatness is a lack of affect, and that's kind of the thing that you glaze over the surface when beneath it's like all that blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. Agreed. Yeah, the other line of dialogue that's, again, kind of going back to what you were saying, is like, it's not it's not really the way that people would talk, but it's just so awesome in the context is when the husband says, I want to kill something majestic today. It's like, no one would say that, but that's amazing. Like, yeah, I totally get that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's sort of, that dialogue to me too sort of validates the idea that these people live in the real world, but maybe in a, like a slightly heightened version of this real of the real world that like mm-hmm. you know it's our world but not and that to me gives more credence or gives room for the weirdness that i that i see in other scenes yeah for sure right is there anything else you want to talk about i did feel like so there's this one line that i just really liked that i think like if i had to pick out a line that really kind of encapsulates the heart of of the story for me it's the line that says the scar across my belly splits open and blood dampens my shirt but i sit still i sit with my sister mm. she needs this from me and that kind of like it's again it's one of those moments that crosses that boundary of real and not real and it's like well her her scar probably has not split open but we get that it's a sense of like you know when you say your heart is broken it's the same kind of thing yeah i really like that line and i think it i like it for the reason that you're describing is that it's another one where it really is treading that line um beautifully i think also one of the things that's interesting to me and i think that that line is a piece of it is how this story kind of escalates the weirdness and makes it possible for me to accept like the car accident or the the fingernail c-section and i think that there's this sort of really interesting like turning up of the heat in some way of those so like there's this sort of repetition of i am a knife that does that for me um but we kind of go from cutting open the deer with her fingernail to i think the car accident to her scar opening up to then the the c-section that she performs on her sister to then finding out why she has that awful scar as well right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it's sort of the the like structure of that feels really interesting to me yeah. in this story and seems to kind of i mean in some ways the the car accident scene is actually less plausible than the the final c-section right the, yes um, yes so it, it sort of, it peaks there, but I think it also sort of builds up to me accepting that, like we were saying before, like, we don't really know for sure that there is, there's going to be complications with her sister's pregnancy, or that that's really what's going on. But I think it sort of builds up this, almost geometry, right? Like, I, I come to expect that that's going to happen. Right. Um, and and I come to accept that that's what she's going to do, I think, because the the sort of way has been laid for mm-hmm. me with these previous incidents that have kind of gotten both increasingly violent, maybe, um, or, or traumatic, but also increasingly kind of strange. Yeah. 
And also, it's just like that really awesome visual echo that she's built over the course mm-hmm. of the story. I do, and I do think the weirdest part of the story for me was the line about how her baby's head was too big. Mm-hmm. I think that was like the most like upsetting line for me. Yeah, it is disturbing. Yeah, her head was strangely large, her skin almost translucent, which is just interesting when we're presented with this baby who's, like, not going to survive, and then the other baby who's, like, you know, one of those, like, he came out perfect kind of babies. (laughs) It's just a really interesting... Yeah. Well, it's another one of those things that, like, it doesn't feel that unreal to me to describe a premature or, you know, a newborn baby that way, Mm -hmm. but it also feels super weird. Yeah. Basically, I feel like this story is having its cake and eating it too, and I'm super impressed. Yeah. <laughs> Ditto. Like, I just really, I really love that about this story. Yeah. It was great. Fuck yeah, Roxane Gay. Yeah. Keep doing your amazing thing. So, I have this section that we've been doing, which is called either The Weirdest Read of All or My First Weird, where we invite one of our listeners or friends to contribute either one of those categories. And they'll tell us either the weirdest thing they've ever read or the first thing that they read that they recognized or appreciated as weird. This week we have a contribution from Daniel Knowlton, who is a friend of ours from the University of Maryland MFA program. And he's going to talk about Jim Shepard's story collection, Love and Hydrogen. Dan is the fiction editor for Sakura Review. His writing has appeared in Friction, Little Fiction, and Up Literature, and he received a semester fellowship to the Washington, D.C. Writers' Room, where he began working on his current novel in progress. Uh, And I just adore Dan. He's great. I'm also in a writing group with him. I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. And uh, his novel is pretty great. I want to read it so bad. It's super good. I just really, I can't wait for it to get out there in the world. I used to believe in a hard line between genre fiction and literary fiction. This was at the end of high school and the start of college. I had wanted to be a serious writer with a capital S, and that meant distancing myself from all the quote-unquote silly genre stuff that I loved as a kid. I was reading writers like Tom Jones, Richard Ford, and Raymond Carver, I tried to mimic their style in my own short stories, and so I wrote about sad white dudes with drinking problems and messy relationships. It felt like good work. Serious work. I don't mean to dismiss these writers or my teachers who listed these stories on their syllabi, because I still learned much from them and I loved what I was reading. but. It was rare that I ever felt at home with my own work while trying on this image of the serious writer. Finally, in my sophomore year of college, I read something that jarred me awake that brought me back to the weird. It was a short story collection called Love and Hydrogen by Jim Shepard. This is a collection full of dark humor and zany settings The title story follows two gay men and their relationship while on board the final moments of the Hindenburg's voyage. There's a story starring a character straight out of the Swamp Thing from comic books, and one story is titled Glut Your Soul on My Accursed Ugliness. How could you not read a story with that title? Reading this collection for the first time, I imagined Jim Shepard trying to think up the strangest, most improbable settings or characters as a kind of literary challenge to himself to then make us, the readers, feel real human emotion by the close of the story. He goes about accomplishing this goal in different ways. Sometimes it's the sheer musicality and wonder of the language. Take, for example, the opening lines of the story, Love and Hydrogen. Imagine five or six city blocks could lift with a bump and float away. The impression the 804-foot-long Hindenburg gives on the ground is that of an airship built by giants, and excessive even to their purpose. The fabric, hole, and mainframe curve upward 16 stories high. In these opening lines, Shepard writes with facts. The length and height of the airship, 
combined with a clear sense of awe. Here, the Hindenburg is no longer just the news story of its end in flames or an old black and white photo. It exists in the here and now, and I don't care that we already know where the story must end. In other stories, the narrator is so fascinating and knows so much more than we do that I don't question the fact that I'm listening to the creature from the Black Lagoon. Take this opening line. Before they came, I went about my business in pond muck, slurry, roiling soups and thermoclines of particulate matter and anaerobiotic nits and scooters. What even are nits and scooters? I don't know, but I'm definitely on board. As I read through the collection the first time, my overall feeling was that the stories looked like genre pieces, but they tasted like literary fiction. Or sometimes it was vice versa. But the important thing was that I felt like I finally had the permission I was seeking to write weird. Looking back on this time, it's painfully clear that I had a typical white dude writer approach to reading. Even Jim Shepard was still another white dude in a long line of white male writers. Thankfully, these days, my preference for weirdness has a lot more diversity, but Love and Hydrogen was still the first swift kick that I needed in the right direction. So thanks, Jim, and thanks to Carly and Lindsay for letting me share. Oh my god, I just love this, and thank you, Dan, for sending this and for dealing with our pestering, but this is just like, <laughs> this was just so good to listen to and really resonated with me in so many ways, especially mm-hmm. with that kind of like, be true to yourself yes. um, thing. Yeah. Well, I think that's something that, like, we've talked a little bit about it, you and I, but that idea of permission to be weird mm-hmm. in your writing, I think is is really something that a lot of people struggle with. It's definitely because there are so many pressures from sort of normal literary people and, and books that were assigned in class and, and pretty much the rest of the writing world, like the idea that you should be writing serious with a capital S literature with a capital L, it seems to be kind of pervasive. I think that's why the first weird is, is kind of interesting is to think about what gave people that permission or what helped people see that this was how they needed to be writing. Right. And also, I feel like this is where that, you know, kind of stereotype of the young person wanting to write the great American novel is coming mm. in. Is like, that's that's the capital S serious literature. So these moments of divergence are really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think Dan, Dan is talking really interestingly about this prejudice that exists both in terms of, like, I should be writing stories about straight white men having problems and written by straight white men who have problems. <laughs> um, so there's that kind of literal prejudice. But then there's also this prejudice that draws a line between literary fiction and, and genre fiction. And I think he's kind of articulating something that a lot of people feel is that to be taken seriously, you have to be doing one and not the other. And, and I think he's articulating what a lot of us experience, which is that there's a lot of good writing, and particularly some of the best writing, is uh, blurring that line. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I love, too, his talking about uh, the title story, Love and Hydrogen, with the, you know, we know, we already know the outcome of the story, and I feel like, you know, we feel that way about a lot of stories that have that historical lens, like it's so easy to go and kind of Google what the outcome is, but mm-hmm. Jim Shepard's attention to language and building the scene that's really interesting uh, just makes you not care about the outcome, and the outcome is still a surprise by the end of the story. Yeah, and I really think that that's part of what weird fiction is about too—is that element of surprise. Yes, absolutely. And I think he at some point Dan was talking about things being like facts being combined with a sense of awe or wonder, and like that to me is really the crux of what a lot of writing that I like is is doing is that it's it's dealing in the real world in some way, but it's doing it with this sense of surprise yeah. that feels really crucial. Yeah. If it doesn't make me feel like that sense of awe or surprise, I'm not sure it feels worth reading. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say Dan super sold me on this book. Like I, I had, I've not read a lot of Jim Shepard, which is a travesty probably. <laughs> 
But I really want to read this, and I really want to read that Swamp Thing story. Oh Sounds my god, so good. <laughs> I okay. I I read the one Jim Shepard book that has the astronaut on the cover. Mm-hmm. I cannot remember what it's called, mm-hmm. but that's there are some examples in there too that also I think kind of fit with what Dan's talking about, where Jim Shepard has this kind of he manipulates real events into his worldview in a really mm. interesting way. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of people. I won't say it's trendy exactly, but I think there are a lot of people whose mo is kind of to pull from pop culture and from mythology and and to kind of synthesize that but to see that really well done is super satisfying Mm-hmm. I think the other, the last thing I'll say about Dan's comments, he calls it something that looks like genre but tastes like literary fiction. Oh my god! And I was I like, "That's it. it. That's the thing." Mm-hmm. Or vice versa. Yeah. Or that vice was versa. Genius. Yeah. yeah. Mwah. Yeah. <laughs> Kissing the fingers. That's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, this was just positively marvelous, and thank you for sharing this with us. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is this is just a delight. And if you have your stories of your first weird reading experience or the weirdest thing you have ever read, we would love to hear from you. And you can email us at readweird.gmail.com. We will take your written pieces and read them out. Or you can send us an audio file if you are so inclined. And please do. We want to hear what you are reading that's weird. We always want more stuff that's weird in our lives. Yeah. Do it. (laughs) That's all I have to contribute. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel most of the time. <laughs> Is it? Sometimes. Aww. I don't know. <laughs> Okay, I think that's our show. Yeah. So yeah, that's it for us. Our theme song is Resiste by El Zombie Flash. Thanks for listening. Come back some other time. You can find us in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, any of those other podcatcher type things that you might want to listen to. Please, if you are feeling generous, rate our podcast, review it, subscribe. If you're feeling miserly, you can also do those things. <laughs> Yeah, if you just feel like a real asshole, it's fine too. One star. One star is all I need. (laughs) It's more than zero. Yeah, please review us. We want to know what you think. And be in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Reading Weird. And you can also find back episodes as well as notes to the shows on our website, readweird.com. Stay weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what she said. Thank you.